Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Glenn Preswich. Dr. Preswich is the Presidential Professor of Medicinal Chemistry at the University of Utah, and he holds appointments in the Departments of Chemistry, Biochemistry, Bioengineering, and Surgery. Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are well known for your science, but also been very proactive in terms of translation of science into commercial practice. And in fact, if I read correctly, you've formed or been the co-founder of at least nine companies that are the result of scientific endeavors at the University of Utah. That's right. I live by the motto that nothing gets to a patient unless it's commercialized. And so researchers who want to have an impact, want their research to have an impact, want their students to have an impact, really need to embrace rather than shun the concept of commercialization. Well, there's many people here at the McGowan Institute that have a similar philosophy, so I look forward to learning more about your strategy and some of the outcomes. But before we do that, Perhaps just briefly tell us a little bit about some of your science and the pioneering work you're doing there. Most of the work we're doing right now in the area of regenerative medicine has to do with both wound care, but more importantly now, cell therapy. The HA or hyaluronic acid-based materials that we've been working on now for over 22, 23 years have now finally gotten into patients. In fact, this week is the first clinical experience that we have in man with some of our new hydrogels that are going to be used to deliver cells into patients. Perhaps you can elaborate a little bit on that particular therapy? Sure. The lowest bar for doing a cell therapy treatment right now is to use autologous cells, which mean a patient's own cells, and to put them in a vehicle, in this case our HA or hyaluronic acid-derived hydrogel, and to make sure first in the patients that that hydrogel injection is safe. That's the study that's going on now. The next study, which will be several months later, will be taking fat cells from liposuction from that patient, the patient's own cells, and putting it in this same now safe vehicle to determine whether or not that lengthens the period of time that the cells will stay where they're injected. And then if they stay there, do they make new tissue to remodel the defect in the patient? Specifically, the defects will be subcutaneous defects in the tissue. So like a plastic surgery defect in the upper arm, the face, and those kinds of small defects will be repairable with a small several hundred microliter injection of the hydrogel plus a patient's own fat-derived stem cells. So why did you choose to use a hydrogel? Hydrogels are mostly water. That's where the name comes from. And these hydrogels, since they're mostly water, are very, very bio-friendly. They're not going to interfere with or react adversely with the tissues where you place them. The water is absorbed, resorbed into the rest of the tissues that surround them. The large water content allows for very, very rapid and facile exchange of nutrients into the cells in the gel and from waste products 
out of the cells and out of the gel into the circulatory system. So this is very exciting, but what's the future hold? The future holds the following. We've been saying in the tissue engineering world that tissue engineering products are 20 years away. Trouble is, we've been saying that for more than 20 years. So it's clearly time that we finally produce on our prognostications. And what I'd like to think, and what I will say, is that we view this first autologous fat therapy as only the beginning. The next steps will not necessarily be elaborate bioengineered organs, tissue-engineered organs, but it will be something simpler where you're delivering a few cells to a small place in a tissue in need of repair and allowing the cells and the existing tissue and the surrounding context to do the hard work. I like to say that it's important to let biology do the heavy lifting. We can't over-engineer our products. We have to deliver something simple and something versatile, but we can't over-engineer it because the body needs to do the basic building and regenerative medicine for us. So where might this happen? The things that we've been experimenting with preclinically with our collaborators is in repairing the brain after stroke, repairing the heart after heart infarct, after a heart attack, repairing the liver after a cirrhotic damage or a viral damage when the liver becomes too stiff and non-functional, repairing the kidneys after a chemical damage or an infection-induced damage so the kidney's not working. Many of those tissues are very complicated, too hard to build from scratch, but the tissues have the ability to repair themselves. And if you mobilize the existing stem cells from their niches within those tissues and perhaps add additional stem cells, as in the so-called mesenchymal stem cells, cells from our own bone marrow, or, as I just said, cells from our own fat, which have regenerative potential but need to be channeled into regenerating the right tissue in the right place at the right time, that's what we see as the future, using initially autologous cells to treat damaged tissues that are still capable of doing some of their own repair, but need to have the environment such that that repair can be accomplished by those tissues and within those tissues. So some of our previous guests on this podcast have talked about strategies where they use uh, scaffolds. I gather from what you've just shared with us, you don't depend on scaffolds to accomplish your outcomes. Yeah, scaffolds has two different meanings depending on who you're talking to. So one way to think of a scaffold is, for example, a decellularized tissue. That's literally a scaffold on which cells can be placed or cells will attach once you've implanted that scaffolding. The other way to think about a scaffold is a gel or a polymeric vehicle that is a temporary structure that then goes away after the cells remodel it. And so ideally, that kind of hydrogel scaffold would be both biocompatible but also biodegradable, not eroding by bulk erosion as a polymer, a synthetic polymer would, but eroding by virtue of the, the cells 
creating the enzymes that digest it. As the cells need more space, they digest the stuff that they're finished with and build their own tissue. And so in that way, you never have a defect that ends up being empty and collapsing. You have a defect that's constantly being remodeled. So as in our case, I don't call it a scaffold, I call it a hydrogel support network. That support network would be biologically removed by the cells as they grow in real time. They only degrade it as they need to, as they need to fill the space and need to remodel it with their own secreted extracellular matrix and then the tissue that goes with that matrix. Very interesting. So this is probably a good transition to some of the translational initiatives that uh, you've led. And uh, let me begin by asking what your standard answer to the question about how long does it take from the time you get an idea in the lab until it's available for patients. What's your answer to that standard question? The standard question and the standard answer, unfortunately, have changed little in the last several decades, and the answer is pretty much 20 years. I look back now, I just said that this is October 2013, and this hyaluronic acid-based hydrogel is going into the first clinical safety study this week. The problem is that the very first discovery that led to this was in 1993 in my lab when I was still at Stony Brook, when I had just started on hyaluronic acid several years before that. The second important feature, which embodies this exact technology was in December 2003, when the first reduction to practice occurred. So it's 10 years from the most recent reduction to practice of this exact technology, but that exact technology relies on stuff that I did 10 years before. So the 20-year rule, I call it Arnie Kaplan's 20-year rule, still holds. Dr. Kaplan is a very distinguished professor at Case Western Reserve University, teaches a business course on the business of regenerative medicine, and every course, every year, he says there's a 20-year rule. It doesn't matter what you do, what you discover. You can't beat the 20-year rule, and I'm afraid I thought I'd beaten it, but when I look back, I didn't beat it. I've seen a few examples, particularly in the device area, where it's a little bit shorter, but I don't have any data to argue with here. What you see in the device area is you see things that may have been piggybacked on other things. So some of the 20 years in the five-year device approvals or the 10-year device approval pipelines actually happened because of stuff that was 10 years before. And that's why I thought I'd beaten the rule. I thought I got 10 years instead of 20 years. But if I really look at it objectively and go back to when I first made the first discovery that's now getting into people, it was 20 years. So tell us a little bit about the strategy to be so effective as you've been in terms of getting things from the bench to the bedside. It takes perseverance and not a small amount of luck. You have to be lucky in having selected the right project or stayed with the right project and given up the wrong projects, you have to have been fortunate in identifying and recruiting good management. Professors are not good managers for companies. Professors are inventors, they're inventive, they are explorers, but they're not people who like to focus and execute on a single idea for the rest of their lives and make money out of it. That's sort of not why we got into the game of being academic faculty members. Having a professor run the company 
I won't say a sure recipe for disaster, but it's a frequent cause of failures of companies, in my experience and the experience of my colleagues. It's best for the professor to be the consultant, the scientific officer, the medical officer for the company, and to have competent, experienced management lead the charge on the execution of the business plan. Let the faculty member be in charge of the technical aspects, but let the business person run the business of running the company and getting the product to the market. So I know it's rewarding to uh, be able to see your science be uh, available for patients, but in terms of what you just described, you talked about the business side of making something available. But you also mentioned a moment ago that you have to decide whether it's the right project or not. And there's this continuum of from basic science to applied science to ultimately translation. When is the right time to decide whether this project is the right one to pursue so that someday in the future you can actually have a business plan and a business for it? It's a great question, John. And, you know, it comes back to the clinical need, the unmet clinical need. We can invent all sorts of very cool, very elaborate solutions for which there may not really be a good business model for a product. So we may be solving a product for which the clinical need is marginal or non-existent or non-reimbursable. So I always encourage people to go back to the basics. Make sure the clinical need is clear and unmet by anything else in the way that you think it needs to be met or your colleagues think it needs to be met. You need a second, third, fourth set of eyes to look at what you're doing and to say, yes, I really need that, and if you can do this, I'll help you take it to the clinic. Once the clinical problem is identified, you then have a set of other parameters which have to be in place, and any one of the wheels falling off the car, if you will, any one of those wheels falling off the car means the car is going to veer off track and crash at some point. And so the faster you get out of that car, the less likely you are to be injured by the crash. Here are the wheels. The wheels are intellectual property. Okay, remember, we've got the clinical problem, the unmet clinical need. That's clear. We know that. We need intellectual property to make sure that this is going to be investable by a partner or by a venture capital firm or whatever, angels. Second thing, you need to have a good preclinical plan. How are you going to get the preclinical data to convince investors or partners to put money into this thing? Third, you need to know what your clinical protocol is going to look like because you may have a great preclinical model, but there's no way to evaluate it in a patient population before the thing is commercialized. How is it going to be regulated? That's the fourth thing. If you don't know how it's going to be regulated or what hurdles you have to get over during the regulatory process, it's not going to be possible. What's your product and what's your business model? Does the company, does the clinical need lend itself to a particular product which somebody is going to be able to sell and make money on? And then finally, what about the reimbursement piece? Can you get somebody, an insurer, a health payer, to pay you back for the costs that the patient or the physician have to pay for this treatment. If you solve a problem and you can't get somebody to reimburse you for it, you've got a product, a very good product, which is never going to make money, and it's not going to go anywhere. No sales, no impact. 
and that's the whole thing that universities are starting to get their minds around, which companies have always done, which is that you have to make some tough business decisions. There's going to be some wonderful technology that you have to cut loose because one of these six wheels has fallen off and the car is going to crash. And it's just how much money have you put into this car and how close are you to being killed by it yourself before the thing crashes? So if it's going to fail, you want it to fail earlier, you want it to fail cheap, and you want it to fail quickly and safely. So that's the goal is you start as many companies as are reasonable based on the clinical problem. You decide, you triage them based on having all of these six wheels staying on the car for as long as you can. If one of them falls off, that's the time to cut it loose before you spend any more money on it. Fail early, fail cheaply. Well, I appreciate you sharing your proven recipe for success. It seems to me that there's one essential ingredient in terms of where you sit, and that's students. How do they play into this particular role? What we've realized is that there is a different risk profile for faculty and students. And that's pretty obvious if you think about it. Faculty members are quite risk-averse. We've got our academic careers, we've got our families and our mortgages and whatever. We're not going to take a crazy risk on something that's untested. Students, on the other hand, have to have risk. They are risk-requiring because to innovate to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, they've got to take lots of chances. And they have the time to fail early and fail cheaply. Faculty don't have the time to fail at all, much less fail early and cheaply. So let's work with the students. And in fact, I started a program at the University of Utah in 2007 called the Entrepreneurial Faculty Scholars Program. About halfway through, we realized that that wasn't the whole story. It was the faculty were not likely to be the entrepreneurs. It was the students. With faculty, it's no pain. With students, it's no pain, no gain. So we needed to have the student component to have a true impact. And in fact, at the U, we now have about 3,000 students who are involved in entrepreneurial programs, and we have about 100 faculty who are entrepreneurs or involved in entrepreneurial programs. So there's a 30 to 1 ratio. What are we doing as faculty? We are acting as mentors for student entrepreneurs. They're the ones that are going to make a difference. They're the ones in 20 years that are going to have an impact. What we should be doing is not trying to do it ourselves, but by enabling through education, through expertise sharing, through mentoring, through opening doors for them with networks, help the students make the impact that we won't be able to have in our professional lifetimes. Fascinating. So Dr. Presswich, thank you for sharing your enthusiasm, your passion, and your success stories. And I wish you continued success in your many endeavors that you've highlighted here today. Uh, as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. On behalf of the McGowan Institute, who sponsors these podcast series, uh, thank you for joining us today. 